The Paranet Podcast, a Dresden Files book club. Welcome to The Paranet Podcast with your hosts, me, Patrick Lunn, and... Me, Rob Davis. And we have a Bobby Dazzler of an episode for you guys today. We're going to be doing uh, a bit of D&D chat around uh, how we would make certain Dresden Files characters in the D&D universe. Uh, and then we're going to be diving in with our second set of chapters in Death Mass. <laughs> Fun fact for you, Pat. Did you know that Bobby Dazzler is a Australian sitcom? No way. Really? Yeah, man. I only know it from David Dickinson on... Uh... That show he used to be on that has now gone from my brain. Um, oh, um, Hunt. Yeah, I was going to say uh, Cash in the Attic, but I think that's a different thing. <laughs> it's a different, but exactly the same thing. Yeah, just uh, some other old dude instead. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't know what it's like over in like America, where a lot of our fans are, or... Um, or in Europe, but in England we have daytime television, which is just the weirdest collection of things. Uh, it's like mundane things being filmed, um, and very strange personalities kind of find their way into it. And uh, if you have if you have the the time, I seriously recommend searching David Dickinson because um, he's a bit of a an icon around these parts. Um, Is he alive? Yeah, I'm trying to think of other ones. I don't know. Um, so, I don't think I've seen him on anything in a good 20 years. But then I don't actively go out of my way to watch anything of him in. He's listed as David Dickinson expert, which is not necessarily what I would attribute to him, but there we go. <laughs> uh, he is... 79 years old and is still alive. Jesus, he's probably been 79 for like 79 years. <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, I, I think he's a bit like uh, Prince Philip where they, um, they just defrost him every couple of years. Give him a few grams of crack and have what? Have at you. Um, anyway... <laughs> Um, we we this is maybe the the quickest we've gone off topic. Yeah, that's uh, a new record or new low. <laughs> should probably say. Um, so bring it back on topic for that one guy on iTunes who said that we never talk about Dresden Files. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so today we are talking about uh, creating Dresden Files. Uh, Justin Files characters in Dungeons and Dragons. Um, this is part of Paranet Podcast, uh, Paranetworking. Goodness, this is part of Paranetworking where we cover stuff from the Dresden universe, including topics that Dresden fans love to discuss. Uh, this definitely being one of them, um, as well as what's going on with Jim Butcher and and where he's at. Uh, Jim seems to be taking a bit of a break from. Uh, putting stuff out at the moment, which after the year of Dresden last year, 
is very much uh, understandable. Um, I think he's also probably working on uh, the next of his um, his steampunk series, uh, Ether Spire. Um, I think that's right. Cinder Spires. Spires. I, keep, I think I said it last last week as well. I said Ether Spire. Cinder Spires. Hey, it, it means that um, means free to use. So uh, you know, just saying. Yeah, yeah, if anyone wants to make Ether Spires starring me and Rob as steampunks, um, I'd be down for that. Same. I'll get my goggles <laughs> out. And I will smoke a pipe. <laughs> um, so, yes, um, Dresden Files characters as D&D characters. So, it's funny because there is a Dresden Files RPG. We, we've talked about it a few times on the podcast, and uh, we are possibly looking at playing some very very soon i know we've been teasing that maybe since our very first episode mm-hmm. uh but it's it's still in the works guys um it's just finding bloody time uh no um the the thing is though is that i think a lot of people um through various youtube videos and uh let's plays and uh real play podcasts stuff like dimension 20 uh, uh, oh, Critical Role, um, Bombarded, stuff like that. Uh, they understand D and D, and maybe a bit more reluctant to move to another system, uh, because it normally requires reading like a two hundred page book or something. Um, so yeah, uh, quite often uh, people want to try and uh, create a character from D and D in um, from Dresden Files in D and D. Um, so we've got a couple of ideas of characters that we want to try and create. Um, the first one that, uh, that you brought up, Rob, was the Winter Knight, is that right? Yeah, I mean, it was more for personal reasons, but then you were like, oh, we should do that for the podcast, so now we're here. I see. Personal reasons make it sound way more serious than our weekly D&D game. Yeah, that's a good that being point. said, our, our last session was uh, terrifying. So <laughs> yeah, I I'm still not ready to talk about it. <laughs> that's fair. That is very fair. <laughs> um, so yeah, so the Winter Night um, spoilers for later in the Dresden Files series. Uh, we might be covering some other bits from other Dresden Files books. So if you haven't read the books, uh, jump ahead like 10, 15 minutes when we get to our Dresden Files book club. Um, but yeah, uh, so The Winter Night is when uh, Harry has taken up the mantle of winter and um, it's kind of a general uh, fey uh, hitman really but but a knight esquire i think is the way it's more described um and you want to know how we'd go about doing something like that uh in game and and i think you hit the nail on the head with your, your first try because you, your first suggestion was uh a warlock of the of the fae right yeah i i thought about it more after you were like podcast because then i went and actually sat down and went through some of the guides and stuff um and I've developed it a bit more, which is um, instead of using the wizard class, I would use sorcerer and then multi-class into uh, Pact of the Fae, Warlock. Because, you know, charisma and all that. Yeah. 
Charisma. Charisma. <laughs> yeah, because we are trying to build a, a functional character at the same time, I guess. <laughs> yeah, because um, going wizard and then going uh, Fae Warlock is uh, not really practical unless you're very lucky with dice rolls. You know, it's interesting. The, the typical Dungeons and Dragons uh, wizard that I've studied for 18 years um, kind of wizard doesn't, for me at least, fit the Dresden Files wizard <clears throat> as much as a sorcerer does. No, I mean, it's... I, I, I've had this before with, um, like, before we started playing last year. And originally mm. I was basing it on Dresden and. The character I came up with was was a wizard, but I put like loads of stats into like intelligence and stuff, so he was good at investigation. Um, and I think I still have that character. And then I made a backup one, which was essentially the same character, which was a I think a shadow sorcerer, which I then okay. had multi class into uh, warlock. Yeah. And yeah, that, that's my cool story. I never got around to using them. But those, uh, I mean, I think you could take you could take the Dresden character either way because obviously there is an intelligence aspect. Mm. Um, I'd also be be tempted to throw in some Inquisitor Rogue, Ooh. um, just because Harry's very like handy and can be sneaky sometimes. Yeah. Uh, so I I think there's like there's something around like sorcerer, wizard, rogue. Uh, and then he multiclasses into into a warlock as well, and the the character becomes horrendously broken. <laughs> I mean, if someone uh, else was DMing, we could just do that anyway, just to ruin their lives. Yeah, yeah. There's a plan. There's a very cool YouTube video out there that I'm sure our fans can find by a YouTuber called Puffin Forest, I think. Uh, where he talks about he was doing a home game and he made the, uh, it was something like they could all play level 15 characters and he made one that was multi-classed into every single class um, and just didn't work. <laughs> I'm not surprised. I, I used to play around with builds just because I wanted to see what would work, what wouldn't. And it's, yeah. it's a shame because I, I kept doing things like Barbarian and trying to get like challenge myself and be like I need to like have all the relevant stats for it to multi-class into like I don't know X Y and Z I can't think of a class and most of the time I could I could force it to work but at the expense of the original class not working at all yeah and this is yeah. the thing you've got to plan it out which I don't think. Uh, in truth, um, if you took Harry Dresden as a role-playing character, I don't think he would even say that he'd planned out his multi-classes very well. Oh, definitely. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah. So, uh, so Dresden is um, a few multi-classes, I think. But generally speaking, I think, I think the idea of doing Sorcerer going into... Um, Sorcerer going into Warlock is quite a cool idea. Mm. Uh, and, and that seems to fit a lot of Dresden's kind of shtick. Um, I'd also recommend that DMs particularly check out... There's a section of the Dungeon Master's Guide where it covers, like, modern-day spell usage. Um, 
and it, and it talks a little bit, it uh, gives you a bit of extra spell to use. Um, I think there's also an Unearthed Arcana on this, where there's a couple of extra classes, a couple of spells and stuff for a modern setting. Um, and, and some are really interesting. Uh, you can like make like electronic devices go haywire and stuff, which is very Dresden. Yeah. Um, and you can like interact with um, like like you've got like summon vehicles and things like that. Hmm. Um, I yeah, I'm trying to remember what some of the other stuff is, but um, I'll have a dig anyway. But that that's really cool, and it's always really like interested me. Um, and I quite want uh, I've quite wanted to run that sort of game. Um, but yeah, so uh, other characters from the Dresden Files series, so. Um, I think we can hit one out of the park dead easy. Um, Mike. Um, um, paladin. Just Play. straight up paladin. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the the most paladinist paladin who ever paladined. Um, <laughs> throwing a uh, a nice magic sword, and yeah. Uh, you, you've got that you sorted pretty go. much. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think uh, Molly Carpenter could probably be a, a College of Illusion wizard. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, the only other thing that I, that I think of for her maybe is um, an arcane trickster rogue when she's yeah, at a very low level. That's what I was originally going to go with. Yeah, um, I mean, maybe with her like rave thing that she does, you could go down like a bard route with her. Yeah, I mean, bard is very versatile. I have recently discovered so. Yeah, bard is a lot of fun, and I'm I'm a big, I'm a big uh, bard lover. Um, <laughs> Which is really sad because no one ever seems to play them in my games, apart from one which was very good. Um, so yes, uh, so that uh, so Mike's an easy one, I think. Uh, Molly is uh, pretty easily ticked off as well. Um, Murphy, I would pr- probably dip into Rogue just for the like the double intelligence kind of stuff like stealth um perception because you get like the uh double proficiency uh can't even say it double proficiency bonuses at level one for i think two um attributes yeah um and there had she definitely had a few good sneak attacks in the dresden files um so so i think that that's pretty easy one uh Billy the werewolf, um, I he's kind of described as a, as a warlock. Really, he has like a he's he's given the ability to change by an external power source. Mm. Um, but I I think more realistically, you'd probably go like a barbarian type, maybe. Yeah, um... uh, where he can like rage. Trying to think who else there is. My mind's gone completely blank, so it's okay. <laughs> um, 
Okay, so uh, who do you think would make good D and D monsters or uh, stuff that you'd want to face in D and D from the Dresden De- Files? Definitely the uh, Denarians. Well, I think they are just prime yes. role playing game material. Ah, uh, that there is some really cool, very similar sort of stuff in uh, in D and D where like just the whole idea of having a sort of artifact that like draws you in and messes with you kind of thing. Mm. Um I mean that's that's another aspect of, of Harry Dresden is that you've got the whole time he's with Lash. Um that's that's another sort of warlock pact. Yes, really. it's true. Um I mean he kind of he kind of runs the the gamut of warlocks cuz he's done He's done his time as a as a Pact of the Fiend warlock. He's done his time as a, a Celestial warlock. Um, and now he, he's doing some time as a Fey warlock. Really? Yeah, cheeky <laughs> fucker. <laughs> um, uh, I think I, I would really like to run White Court Vampires at a table. Um... Just because I it, it can be really fun to run like succubi and incubi kind of characters mm. um, and and start getting the party like turning on each other and and stuff. Um, I will also say that, that with that sort of encounter, it, it requires you need a party that's fairly mature about it, <laughs> or else it just descends into knob gags really quick. Uh... <laughs> well, that's inevitable, though. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I'm trying to think. Who else? Oh, oh, I, I, I don't. Uh, uh, listens to wind. One hundred percent a druid. Yes. One hundred percent. Um, high level druid. Um, and would be really cool to play as. Um, I'd love to do like a a Genosqua, Um, oh, sort of creature. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, I'd love to play one, but I'd also love to to put one out as like an enemy, um, and then make it a denarian. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm trying to think of some other really cool Dresden big bads. The start of the last book, where we we had the kind of kraken fight, I quite I quite like an idea of a kraken. I mean, is, um, especially like sorry, is there not anything like that? Already in there because that feels really D and esque. I guess there is. Um, it's like one of the top three most powerful monsters. Um, I I kind of want a, a kraken that's of the level that like one person could have a good fight with it. Um, and also also the, the thing I really loved about the kraken at the start of uh, Battleground was the the moment where Dresden has the like psychic link with it, hmm. um, I thought that that was very cool and like a very like alien thing to make a connection with. Um, I'm just running through Dresden characters in my head. I mean, <laughs> one thing that I would love to run in D and D, and it it would take a very intelligent dungeon master, and and maybe isn't something even that I I feel like I could do for myself. Um, a Marcone-like character that is able to 
still be a problem while basically being a commoner. Um, oh, that'd be good. Like, yeah, like someone that, for whatever reason, the party, possibly just through like their own morals, cannot kill this character. They only have like four hit points, like a standard commoner. <laughs> um, but they they are just manipulating everything in town. I really like the sound of that, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> um, the the only thing I, I know with our D&D party is that someone would eventually just kill the person. Yeah, it's <laughs> it'd be fun guessing who. But, um, I mean, that should be like... You should put like a twist ending on our current campaign where like we get to like the big bad final boss and you're like, oh, it was this guy who who you uh, wronged in the village at the very start of the campaign. Yeah, he's just had an axe to grind for like <laughs> the last couple of uh, months and has been really? doing everything in his power to get you guys killed. Remember the guy who stubbed <laughs> his toe and you didn't ask him if he's okay? Well, he took it personally. <laughs> really fucking <laughs> <laughs> Um Yeah, yeah. Um, cool. So, yeah, I, I think the thing is that I mean, we we do touch on it a lot when we're when we're going through the the book club as well. There are so many great characters that would sit perfectly in D and D because Dungeon Dragons, much like kind of like Lord of the Rings, is this omnipresent, uh, like Rosetta Stone for fantasy, um, where everything kind of is built off it. And um, I think, yeah, I, I think you, you, because those tropes come from Dungeons and Dragons, and it's and it's like um, it's very easy to return them to that. So mm. y- I mean, you can hundred percent play Dresden Files in in D anD D, and I would fully encourage it, and would love to listen or or, uh, or have you to to that. Um, yeah. Um, I uh, and another kind of testament to that is that Jim Butcher has said himself that he creates um, character profiles, uh, Dungeon Dragons character profiles from uh, for each of his characters um, as he's building them because uh, he finds that a really good way to chart their who they are and what's going on with them and stuff. And he fills out the character bio sections and puts more things in in between books and such. Um, that's pretty and cool. yeah, I mean, I I would love to see those character sheets one hundred percent, and maybe maybe one day we will. It sounds like the sort of thing that that Jim would put out. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's um, I think my my point with this is that yeah, you can make any you can make any of those characters into D and D because essentially they have come from D and D, and we see that in even in the last book that we covered, Summer Night where Dresden is playing a barbarian and smashing things at the very end of the story, mm. it comes to that love of tabletop role-playing. Um, so there is something very connected there. And uh, I'm sure that we'll keep, we, we'll keep touching on it. We've touched on it in the past. Um, yeah. Let's talk Sweet. book club. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. The main reason we're here. Um. So, um, 
moving on from our power networking to our Dresden Files Paranet Podcast Book Club Bonanza. Um, this is my and Rob's uh, vain attempt to trawl through all Dresden Files content from the shortest uh, one-page micro comic book to the largest, chunkiest novel that Jim has yet to write, I'm sure. Um, we are going through it all, and after almost a year, it's getting very close, and we're very aware. Um, we are at the fifth book in the Dresden Files series, Death Mass. Um, each week, we go through uh, what we covered last time, uh, so we summarise the previous four chapters, and then we jump into four brand new ones. Uh, then at the end, we do a little bit of talking about nerdy stuff, talking about what we liked about it, what we didn't like about it, a little bit of lit crit, um, and often get deviated into something that makes me waffle for a while, which... Is most things. Uh, so, <laughs> um, yeah, let's let's jump in. So, last time on Death Math, uh, Harry was on the Larry Fowler talk show, uh, where he was discussing the existence or non-existence of magic uh, with fellow uh, ectomancer. Mortimer Lindquist. Um, he was then joined by Father Vincent, uh, a man from the Vatican, and none other than Paolo Ortega, Count Ortega of the Red Court. Um, Paolo and Father Vincent uh, were denying magic's existence, even though both of them... Uh, well, no, Father Vincent truly doesn't know that magic exists, but suspects that there is something Thing going on, um, as we'll get into to a second. Uh, but Count Ortega definitely knows that magic exists and makes no uh, uh, not uh, does not. It, oh God, I've lost my train. Makes uh, no secret to Dresden that he intends to kill him, just not on camera. While there are many Chicagoites uh, watching. Uh, going into chapter two, as Dresden leaves, Father Vincent catches up with him, and uh, uh, tries to talk to him about a case. He says he was referred by Father Fortill, um, and he starts uh, talking about the Shroud of Turin, which apparently has been stolen by a group <clears throat> called the Church Mice. Uh, however, uh, Father Vincent isn't able to say much uh, because uh, him and Harry are shot at by some hired goons. Um, Harry notices between them the hulking mass of Marcone's right-hand man, Hendrix. Uh, that takes into chapter three. Uh, uh, Harry uh, looks after uh, Father Vincent, um, who has been kind of grazed um, and uh, talks to Father Vincent about the case. 
Uh, Father Vincent explains a bit more about the Shroud of Turin uh, and the church mice, uh, a gang of holy artifact thieves, I guess. Um, one of them uh, has been found dead uh, with papers indicating he was en route to Chicago. And two other members, Anna Valmont and Francesca Garcia, are believed to have the shroud and to be heading into Harry's city. Harry takes Vincent's contact number and vice versa. Um, he then gets, uh, he then hears two unknown people fighting nearby as he uh, gets close to home. One of them runs away and Harry prepares for a fight. He puts his shield bracer up, blasting Rod at the ready, produces a fireball. And a woman with dark hair and dark eyes greets him with, well, I've heard of running into an old flame, but this is ridiculous. Susan Rodriguez. Uh, Chapter four, lowering the blasting rod, Harry helps her up. Susan reveals she was fighting a red court vampire. So they go into the apartment. Harry backs away, stating that he can't let her in. Eventually, she enters the apartment, and due to her kind of latent red court abilities, although she still hasn't killed anyone, um... She still has the whole red court saliva thing that makes people go a bit loopy. Um, She kind of hits Harry with a bit of red court whammy. uh, And things start to get a bit heated. Um, In the the good way of heated, not the angry way of heated. Um, Susan states that she can't be intimate with anyone, especially Harry. The risk of her losing control is too high. She tells him that she's quitting her job at the Arcane and further warns Harry that the red court don't want the war to end and that he must be careful. Ortega is a powerful red court warlord. Conversation interrupted by Martin. Fucking Martin, an associate of Susan. (laughs) Before departing, she tells Harry that she will call him very soon. Karen Murphy then calls Standard Stuff, asks Harry to head to the morgue because there's another body. So always a body. Hello to you, Rob. There's always a body. <laughs> uh, yeah, chapter five, we, we kick off, surprisingly enough, at the morgue. And we meet a new character, the fresh-faced Waldo Butters, the polka-loving assistant medical examiner. I'm so excited. And fun fact, he was demoted after correctly reporting inhuman remains from the Velvet Room. Sucks. It's all a conspiracy. Um, in any case, Waldo shows Harry and Murphy a headless corpse. Um, the corpse, well, obviously it has no head for a fucking start, but it's also missing its left hand, and the chest is pretty sliced and diced up. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, Butters believes that the man was tortured but died of uh, many diseases and plagues, some known, some unknown, and from what you can tell it all became active at the same time spooky shit um harry points murph like towards the whole church mice death and um i should backtrack a bit actually there's also a small tattoo on the body resembling an open eye um which harry said he'll figure out if you know murphy can kind of aim towards the church mice stuff um After adjourning that, Harry leaves the morgue and passes by two men, an old, homeless-looking man with a wooden walking stick, 
and what is described as a black man. Um, blah, 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 blah. Um, as he's walking away, he realizes that he's being followed and he whips out his blasting rod because, you know, times are tough, dangers everywhere. He's been attacked already in this book and in previous ones. And he turns around to face whatever's following him, blasting with the ready, and it's this giant fucking bear-like creature with two sets of eyes. And understandably going into chapter six, Harry flees from it because who fucking wouldn't? Even a normal bear, you know, you wouldn't want to mess with. Um, mm. Yeah, as, as he's fleeing from this uh, bear-like creature, he bumps into one of the many past era, the uh, black man. And he grabs him and just <laughs> runs off of him, trying to get him to safety. Um, and the pair then, yeah, they run into uh, the old man as well shortly after. And Harry at this point is like, I'm not dragging two people along. So he, he kind of bucks up the courage to kind of turn to fight the bear and ends up soul gazing with the creature. And he gets a I mean, we all know what the soul gaze is at this point. He gets a glimpse into its true soul, its true being, and all that kind of jazz. And he discovers that this creature is is actually human, but with a heavyweight presence behind it. Um, mm. Coming out of the soul gaze, this thing's like taunting Harry, being like, oh, you're just a mortal, and all this kind of light stuff. And it's, t again, like kind of going back to that, you know, being human, but with something else behind it, it's got two kind of voices the best way i can think of that describing this is uh if you've ever watched dragon ball z and the characters do the whole fusion thing and they have both like <laughs> voice actors doing the voice at the same time it sounds like that um so it's like the human voice led with the demonic voice on top i guess um <clears throat> yeah and the soul gaze it leaves harry stunned and hope not hopeless helpless and at this point both men just a little bit hopeless too yeah i mean like I, yeah i guess um and at this point both men that you know harry just tried saving uh reveal themselves to be knights of the cross sonya and is it shiro or shiro <laughs> i'm gonna go with with shiro rhyming with hero yeah, that's fair. I mean, I didn't go over the audiobooks for this one, so some of the pre pronunciations here I'm probably going to balls up. But, um, yeah, they, they, I love it. They, they reveal themselves to be Knights of the Cross, and they just fucking go for it, go to town on this bear thing. And, oh my god, it, it's such a cool, like, set piece. Like, the whole thing is just... I don't, I don't know how Jim does it. Like, in every book, you're like, oh man, he's not going to top this. And then, like, six chapters in, or he's like outdone himself again and you're like oh how is he going to top this for the rest of the book and yeah he does um yeah and after this thing's kind of dealt with like it, the two the two knights of the cross take some wounds as well because the knight sanya is and i forgot this to be honest is a fresh face he's new to the crew and all that kind of stuff um mm. and then none other than the og himself michael carpenter arrives and the three knights collectively land like the fatal blow on this bear thing, which, by the way, revealed itself to be a uh, or part of the Order of the Black and Daenerys, um, which we'll kind of get into in just a moment. 
And once this thing is defeated, mm-hmm. like this coin emerges from its body and just kind of falls to the floor. And it's interesting to observe that the knights take great care in picking this coin up. I mean, we're like throwing a fucking handkerchief on it first and then picking it up. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> and yeah, the you know it's um, that that the 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 Daenerians dropping the coin always always makes me think of Scott Pilgrim when he beats the bosses. <laughs> Yeah, I kind of, I kind of get that now that you mention it. Um, it's not, it's not even enough for bus fare. <laughs> oh man, I'm, I'm surprised that's not been like referred to in Dresden Files, um, unless it has, and I've just forgotten. But uh, yeah, the presence behind the coin is revealed to be, like I just said, Order of the Black and Denarius, aka one of the Fallen, aka, aka. Um, a fallen angel, I guess. And this one is called Ursiel, who mm. is a big, nasty beast. And Michael informs Harry there are 29 more of the fallen, and they are looking for Harry. Chapter 7. We return to our favourite holy place, the St. Mary of Angels Cathedral. And here's a weird thing. I forgot it was a cathedral. Like, I kept thinking church, and then this book was all cathedral, and I was like, has it always been a cathedral? And I haven't verified that of myself, so I'll do that tomorrow. Um, but yeah, an interesting conversation kicks off about belief. And I think this is where religion starts getting interesting in the series, because despite Sonya receiving you know, the, the, the holy sword that he carries from an archangel, he still considers himself to be agnostic, which I don't know it is even even like Harry's amused by this because it's just such a bizarre thing. It's like you you're you're fighting fallen angels, you've met an angel, but you still don't mm. believe. And I feel, I mean, I I guess it kind of falls into like Harry's journey of faith as well. But I mean, we'll explore that later. <clears throat> uh, we also find out that the um, uh, the Knights of the Cross know Harry is looking for the Shroud. Um, and the fallen Ursul wasn't there to kill Harry, but to recruit him. And it's explained that once you touch the coin of the fallen, the fallen then tempts you with power. And Harry realises that, you know, he... The temptation would probably... I mean, there's this whole thing of, like, he wouldn't be tempted, he's been tempted before, blah, blah, blah. But at the same time, he realises what that temptation would be for him, taking into account that, you know, he's got the upcoming duel with uh, Count Ortega. A bit a bit more firepower, yeah. you know, would be quite nice. Just uh, just saying. Just tempting, you know? Um, a little extra gas under the hood. Yeah, I like, mean, come on now. Who, who'd say no, apart from... Captain America, uh, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, the, the coin that has been retrieved is placed into the safety of Father Forthill, and Michael begs Harry to keep out of the case for his own safety. Don't don't go for the shroud kind of thing. And I quite like the exchange here, because he's like, I, I know we've worked together, but it's along the lines of, I know we've worked together before, I have a child named after you, but I'm begging you please don't look for the shroud 
Um, yeah, this isn't your fight, man. Just like stand down, yeah. chill out. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and chapter Have eight. And my notes here are, are a bit weird because I kind of just, yeah, I, I'll just go into it. Harry returns to his apartment and he consults Bob on everything that's happened since this book started. Um, and we kind of get a rundown of like the plan here, which is finding out that the Accords allow him to choose a weapon for the duel and Ortega gets to choose the location. But Harry also needs to choose like a second choice of weapons. So, for example, if he chooses magic and Ortega chooses, you know, I don't want to fight with magic because he's proficient in that then mm. harry has to pick a backup so like i don't know pistols at dawn kind of thing and if ortega agrees then cool i don't know what happens if he disagrees does someone else decide i, th- I think there's something about like you can't be too difficult about it like you get yeah. a couple of choices and then and then it's kind of like yeah you just don't want this duel do you <laughs> <laughs> but um yeah, Bob also identifies the tattoo of the eye of, uh, and again, apologies for pronunciation, Thoth. 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 Um, and it's mentioned that he can't identify like the body for it because a lot of a lot of groups use this uh, tattoo, which is you know fair enough, I guess. Um, as we progress, Harry then draws like the symbol of the fallen, which was on the coin that Ursula had. And he shows it to Bob. Bob understandably freaks the fuck out. And he's like, I, you, get rid of that. Rub it out. Like, bin it. I don't want anything to do with the Fallen. And he explains that the Fallen, or Denarians, I should probably say, are super powerful. They are typically humans that they inhabit. But the humans are also skilled. And with the coins, they are basically immortal. And it gives them time. I guess, you know? Upskilling your knowledge, your skill, your power. You're going to be dangerous. They're also... They're, they're symbiotic, really, aren't they? Like they yeah. They, they bond with humans, and they take advantage of the human skills, and the humans take advantage of the power from the yeah. Genarians. And that also means that, that normally they choose quite skilled humans that are, are already pretty nasty pieces of work in their own right um and secondly they um they learn from their humans Mm. so after a while they pick up more skills from someone who's had a lifetime of building up skills as i don't know a pianist they pick that up as well and then the next person that they pass on to will have the skills of a pianist and also be able to play the bassoon and that's just how it goes. I mean, I think Bob states that uh, the typical kind of people that are chosen for this are like assassins, um, other magic users like warlocks and stuff like that, rogue wizards, that kind of thing. So, mm. I mean, we'll obviously bump into more of them along here, so we won't go into too much depth. Um, and yeah, moving on to the Shroud, Bob says he can't locate it himself because it's an artifact of faith. While he is a spirit of intellect, that's like, I don't know, putting custard on your roast dinner instead of gravy. Um, It's a bad vibe to mix. And 
he informs Harry that he can contact... I can't pronounce this name at all. Olshavaraz? Olshavaraz, yeah. Yeah, we'll go we'll go with that. Yeah. Um, who is a oracle spirit, which means they're supposedly more capable of finding this sort of thing. Um, Harry sends Bob out. I, yeah, sorry. I reckon Harry should have just uh, called up Chauncey from book two. Yeah, I'm, I'm a bit surprised uh, that wasn't the case, but I yeah, guess going to be Yeah, Zagaroff would have, he'd have helped him out, just, just give him one of your names and you'd be fine. Yeah, just, it doesn't even have to be your real name. Yeah, not, yeah. How's he going to know? Uh, Stephen, there we go. And, Harry and Stephen Dresden. Yeah. <laughs> and then Harry's like, nah. And then Chauncey's like, I heard that. <laughs> I'll get you for less. Um... <laughs> Uh, <laughs> uh, Harry sends Bob out to gather information um, while Harry summons the Oracle Spirit, which is what I'm going to refer to it as. Um, and from the Spirit, which is very well spoken, I thought, um, Harry gets the location of the thieves in exchange for answering why he does what he does, to which Harry responds with a... I don't really know, which is, which is fair, because... Like, as an example here, I had a tutorial a few weeks back, and I was asked by the lecturer, so why, why are you doing the master? And I was like, I don't know why I'm here. Which, you know, I, th I think that's more when you're put on the spot, more than anything else. Yeah. Um, yeah, my, I mean, it happens sometimes where I'll go into the kitchen and Kerry will be like, what are you doing in the kitchen? I'm like, I don't know. And then I'll make a sandwich and then sit back down. Um, and yeah, and finally... Harry is also told that the Knights of the Cross don't want him to be involved because if he goes for the Shroud, he would die. According to this, you know, prophecy, which when a prophecy has ever been reliable, let's be honest here. But what the Knights don't know about the prophecy is that if Harry doesn't go, they all die and so will the city. So <laughs> tough, tough call, really. Yeah, die one way, die the other. Just, <laughs> Either yeah. way, you're fucked. Yeah. <laughs> um, so what did you think I of those chapters? I, I, I was going to say, I think that brings us to the end of the chapters. Yeah. Yeah, that that was... There was a lot going on here. Like, I, I was... I sat down to, like, do other things while... Because um, I also listened to the audio book this morning mm. to kind of refresh myself a bit. Just so I'm like, I don't like, I don't want to read through the notes. And be like, I don't remember any of this. Um, so I had like the audiobook on while doing other bits, and I, sorry, my cat just moved, and I've lost my train of thought completely. But um, God damn it, cat! <laughs> oh shit! It's okay. You listen to the audiobook. Yeah, um, I mean, my no, seriously, my mind's completely gone. So if you want to pick up, and as soon as I'm, as soon as I catch the next train, I'll, uh, I'll just interrupt. Yeah, that's that's fine. That's <laughs> fine. Uh, <laughs> oh god, I, it, I will say to anyone who who feels like the tone may be a bit different today on on the Paranet podcast, um, it was Mother's Day in England at the weekend, so both of us are like the good little boys that we are. Spent it with our mothers, um as much as we could through socially distanced measures. Um, and 
so we are now recording on a weeknight after Rob has had a full day of uh, master's degree stuff and I, I believe uh, uh, interviews and various other bits. And I've had a full day of uh, of, of working. Um, so both of us are just a little bit more spacey and a little less focused, if you haven't already noticed. <laughs> oh, but yes, um, going back to I think the I know what I was going to say. I um, I went yeah. into like these chapters kind of thinking like, oh, we'll get introduced to like one thing, being like Waldo Butters or something like that, and then it feels like everything happened. <laughs> <laughs> like, I was just I like, must admit, this is like, covering my... everything that I remember from this book. <laughs> yeah, I mean, pretty much the same. Um. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I don't even know where to begin because there's quite a lot. Let's begin Start at the beginning. beginning. Yeah, that's probably best. Yep. Um. So first we get Waldo Butters. Oh my god! Uh, <laughs> what an amazing character, and I think. He's very easy to fall in love with from the start, really. Um, yeah, I think his position of not being like um, fully in on what's going on, like him being yeah. a civilian and all that, and not like as equipped as Murphy or Michael, for example, kind of puts him in the unique position of if if, if it wasn't like the point of view of Harry, then he'd be like the character the audience identify with, I guess. Yeah, definitely. I think, um, cause it's really interesting to not have a fighter. Hmm. Uh, here, like, um, he is just a dude and is gonna, um, he's not, he's not going to be joining the battle anytime soon. Um, he's just a guy that sits on the sidelines and, has a vague understanding that there's something going on, mm. um, and it's it's sad. It uh, it it is sad because he he can't really join their world because he can't look after himself like Murph could, um, and he can't really join the human side much because he knows too much. He knows it's not all right. Something's going on behind the scenes. Um, and I think that makes that makes him a really interesting character. And then you throw in the the polka stuff, um, and he's just kind of general geekiness, um, and he he just slowly be you just build this picture of this guy that is just such a a lovable kind of bumbling um guy who is very proficient in his field as in medicine but can't go much further because he knows too much oh yeah and he likes polka uh, what more could you want and and yeah he really likes polka um uh as we will find many times in the future um <laughs> But yeah, uh, uh, I think Jim has a soft spot for him, um, and 
I I know that like some fans have problems with him more in later books, but for now, I think uh, we can all agree he's pretty pretty damn lovable. Um, the rest of the of that of chapter five, um, the stuff around the corpse and stuff, uh, we're plodding along with the the classic kind of Jim Butcher mystery. Um, it's nice to see Harry and Murph doing a bit more detective work, especially after the last book, which was a bit lighter on that. Um, it feels like we're we're coming back towards uh, the fantasy noir kind of tropes, which is pretty cool. Um, and then yes, we get uh, Ursiel, the the kind of bear demon, um, which is super super cool. Um. <laughs> uh, he's uh just this big Hulk, um, and facing off against him, we get the uh the Knights of the Cross in their entirety, uh, with Shiro and Sanya, and such an incredible group of characters, um. I love the way that the Denarians are depicted as these kind of um, lost souls, but like almost in mo- in a lot of cases, almost too far gone. Um, like it's it's not just like uh, the vampires where it's like oh they've got like an addiction or they they, they have something that they need to sate. It's like these. These people made bad choices, and they knew what they were doing at some point. Um, what's your thoughts on it, Rob? Man, like, ugh. I mean, it's quite cool because as soon as and it, this is kind of spoiler territory for a skin game, but um, the denarian we meet here, uh, Ursiel, is mm-hmm. like probably because I read Skin Game more recently, actually, is the one that, um, is the coin that the Genosqua, like, takes. Yeah. And I, like, lost my shit. Because, I mean, at the point of reading Skin Game, I hadn't read Death Masks in, like, two years, nearly. Three years. <laughs> Good grief. Um, so, yeah, like, that coming up there made me do a little giggle and a little dance. Um, which I won't recreate or film at any point. But, um... <laughs> No, I mean, overall, I think, and I think we've kind of touched upon it uh, before, I don't know when or why, but I'm glad we're finally at the point where Denarians are popping up, because they're one of the most fascinating and creative villains within the series, and probably fantasy as a whole. Like, I, I say each book for me gets better and better, but I think... I know that Death Masks, for, for being a book, like like I say, I read only like two, three years ago, it, it's one mm. of those ones that like st- sticks in my mind a lot more clearly than the rest, and it's the one I've probably been looking forward to reading, rereading the most, to be honest, just for like everything that's about to happen. Like, yeah. I, don't, I don't know if that's because also the touch of like, like the religious aspect kind of with it makes it a bit more real, I guess. But yeah, I I can understand that. Um, 
So what is it that you like about the Denarians then, particularly? I I don't... Oh, that's hard to say. You put me a bit on the spot. Um, I mean, off the top of my head, I think that kind of villain, like Fallen Angels and stuff like that, it's done in so many different ways in so many different like TV shows and books. It's, I mean, uh, actually, that's not a good example. But, um, yeah, you've got loads of it throughout different media and stuff like that. And it's normally quite... Not samey, but the, 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 it'll be like the same thing, but of a different paint job or something like that, or a little less angsty. Whereas Denarians kind of flip that for me a bit because of the whole coin aspect and that it's, in the case of some of them, some of them have bonded with the human counterparts. And as we get later in the series, they're more... Like, it's not so much the Denarian taking control of the human, it's the human and the denarian working side by side as a kind of friendship, I guess, working relationship. Um, Certainly. And, I mean, this is something I'll just I'll bring up a lot more as, as we're <laughs> introduced to more and more of them, but they are just possibly the most fascinating villains, and I feel, and I'm kind of glad that we don't, we don't get a lot of background on them, apart from the kind of stuff that we already have. Um, specifically, like people like uh, Nicodemus and stuff like that, who we were introduced to probably in a few chapters' time. But y- you don't need like a backstory for him. You don't need to know what he was doing before he became a denarian. It's just he's just ah. Oh. <laughs> I, I can't put it. I mean, if, if you had asked me this ahead of the recording, I probably would have come up with an actual answer. But that's as close as you're going to get at the moment. Yeah, I mean, my my love for them comes from a completely different angle, which uh, is really interesting to me. Um, I love how alien they are. Mm. Um, they're like vampires. Um, so so villains we've had so far. So we've had. Uh, rogue uh, magic users, uh, pretty human. You get power, uh, the power kind of corrupts. Um, you've got the, uh, you've got werewolves. Um, majority of the werewolves, especially the loot guru and the the hexen wolves, very very kind of human ideas. Um, of like. Uh, how do you, how do you react when you've got like a condition that you can't control? And then there's again that like addiction to power kind of thing. Um, we've had the like uh, vampires and um, we had uh, the like the ghost of a of a sorcerer. Um, and and again like you can understand the motivations there. You can understand the addiction and stuff. Um, then we had like the fake courts. That was um, a little further away from human. Uh, mm. Faye um, more have that like uh, royal uh, politics machinations, wheels within wheels kind of thing going on. Very like Game of Thrones kind of style, uh, that political intrigue sort of style um, about them, uh, which is uh, is interesting. In its own right, but again, is is quite human. Hmm. The Denarians, they don't 
we never really get a good explanation of their motive. Like, what what is the end game for a denarian? Well, they want to possess people. Okay, but most of them have possessed people. Well, they like causing harm and they like annoying the Knights of the Cross. Okay, but that seems kind of like a side thing, like a, a petty thing for them. Yeah. Um. There's no like they want to like plunge the world into darkness or anything. There's a kind of they don't like holiness. Mm. Um. But I don't think even all thirty of them combined are necessarily going after the Abrahamic God, for instance. Um. They're just they're very like strange in their machinations and in their way of doing things. Um, and that kind of prevails throughout them, the series. And um, they're, they're almost have like a Joker like aspect of like, they're just kind of there like chaos for chaos's sake. Mm. Um, in a way they're, they're there to sow discord and, and, negative emotions throughout humanity um, and push these coins onto people. I think, And then the way that they... Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, I think the kind of little we know about them in terms of motivation is what makes them, or adds to what makes them so compelling. Yeah, because you, you can put your own kind of thoughts on it. And there's, there's a general kind of... Um, sense that they might not all be aligned that they might have different goals but it's never really explained too much mm. um it's just like yeah they're all kind of bad news some like um ursiel who we see here very simple he is just the hulk essentially he loves big brutish like uh smashing destroying things um that's not like a being with an end game it's just someone who loves destruction um which is it, like it's just such an alien concept for a human it's like you don't have to think about where your next meal's coming from you just want to smash um it's it's very it's very interesting um, and then, yeah, the way that they, like, bond with humans and stuff and the way that they kind of pervert people and change them is very, uh, very intriguing. And there's a lot of good character stuff there, as we hear about in later books and, and even in this one uh, on kind of how they, they sway people around to their, their way of thinking. Um, but the other thing that's so alien about them is they their appearances. Every one of them has a different look to them. They're not all bear demons. They're not. Um, and some of them are do crazy. They it remind, it remind me a little bit of um, Hellraiser. I think yeah. it's the, the series uh, with like Pinhead, where you've got the the like demonic beings there that each of them have like a very different form, and there's no like through line. Um, I guess another one that you could go with is like the ghost from Ghostbusters. Like the, there's not like a, a standard style of ghost. There's like I mean, compare like Stick of Marshmallow Man to like the Library Ghost. Um, that like they they aren't even the same species. Um, and it's very similar here. Like um, you've got huge bear demon, and then um, uh, I mean, I'll use Nicodemus because we're we're gonna get to him very soon. He his kind of form 
is pretty much human and how he looks uh, regularly, but with uh, an extended, elongated cloak of shadows wrapped around him, um, which is very, like, subtle, and he's able to kind of blend that into most situations. Um, and, yeah, it, it's it's just very mysterious, and I love it. Um, on the flip side of that, Knights of the Cross. Um, mm. Now we've got we've got the gang all together. What's your thoughts on uh, Shiro, Sonya, and Michael together? Oh man, I mean, it was such a big moment. Like when I first read this, and it, it was a big moment now. But like, oh man, just the Knights of the Cross are just so badass, and I think not including Michael here, but Sonya's probably like one of my favorite characters in the entire series. Especially, oh, especially the whole thing about him being agnostic and stuff. It just kind of, like I say, I, I don't know why. I just I'm a sucker for Dresden Files when it involves religion as well, because it's always it's never as complicated as like, yes, I believe, no, I don't believe, and you've got a guy who's met a fucking archangel is fighting like fallen angels like on a regular basis. <laughs> he still doesn't believe. Always like, yeah, skeptic. And Jim does dive into it more as we get to know Sonya more and more, and it, it's it's understandable why he feels the way he does. Like there is a logic there. He's not just like an idiot or someone who uh, hasn't got it yet or something. It's like no, he he does this because of X, mm. and that's why. Um. So, yeah, I, like Sonya uh, is a really interesting character, and also, um, something that uh, I really, I was really interested in, like the cultural side of it. I didn't know that there was a, I, I guess it's Afro-Russian, uh, kind of community, okay. or that there was a, uh, an Afro-Russian sentiment, uh, like like a. A stereotype there um and jim explores that that um there is uh, like to some degree um quite severe racism that sanya's been met with um he yeah. talks about it a few times in the books uh and um doing a bit of of like searching into it i mean i think i think it's much more well known about the russian kind of history with the lgbtq plus uh, movement, mm. but um, but uh, that there is there is a history of racism within Russia that you, I, I, it's just something that I'd never even thought of until the character of Sonya came up, and then I was like, oh, I, I mean, yeah, it makes sense. They they are a very rigid, predominantly white country. I can understand yeah. why that might be a thing. Um. So I thought that was really interesting, and a lot of Dresden Files characters fall quite neatly into archetypes of noir fiction, particularly. Um, and and the big twist is like it's noir fiction crossing over into fantasy, and that that creates something fresh and new. But Sonya for me is a character that a a Afro Russian character I don't think is a trope. I think that's something quite fresh. And that we don't see very often in literature. 
Mm. Um, and that I found really like, whew, that's that's refreshing. That's different. On the other end, you've got Shiro, who is um, quite a trope in himself. The old, the wise uh, herb. Asian. Sorry. The wise herb. Yes. The 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 Mister Miyagi, uh, wise old Asian man. Uh, with the walking stick that um, he can use uh, expertly as a blade. Um, serious, like, Yoda vibes, that sort of thing. Um, that being said, it, I mean, it's a good trope. I um, mean, interestingly enough, you mentioned Mr. Miyagi, and when I when I first read the book, and I, you kind of have those visual cues of who you imagine or what you imagine, and I always imagine yeah. Shiro being uh, Pat Morita, who played Mister Miyagi, because he's got that. The Shiro just has that same kind of charm, and that yeah, like even even in like the worst of situations, he's still just kind of like, I mean, yeah, it's pretty bad, but you know. It's it's one of those where it's like you might as well he he's got a very like um you might as well just smile about it and and just be happy mm-hmm. and thing things will work out if they're meant to work out and he's kind of reached that point of like that that zen um, that being said I I know that there are some concerns with that sort of character archetype in yeah. That, there's like a bit of a, a model minority thing and um, an expectation that um, older Asian people are, are have great wisdom to impart and all that sort of thing. And that uh, there is a form of, of racism in there. Um, so I, 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 don't, I think it'd be wrong not to acknowledge that. But I personally enjoy the way that this character is depicted. Uh, and I think it is fairly positive. Yeah, I'd say so. Um, I like. I don't think he 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 never is like quoting uh ancient like Zen Cohen's or something or like getting people to like balance on one leg in a wooden temple, which seems to be a very like that archetype thing. Um. So uh, yeah. I, I almost feel a bit ill-equipped to, to, to talk about this, and I don't I don't want to <laughs> say the wrong thing. Um, I think the most that we can come down on is Shiro is a fun character and is very enjoyable. The archetype that he's drawn from has problems um, that we should acknowledge, I guess. Yeah, that's fair enough and well said as well. Oh, thank you. That's all right. Um, so yeah, but seeing them all together, brilliant. Seeing the three of them uh, with Michael as well teaming up on Ursiel is incredible. And I and I really get this idea of like if it was one on one, they would almost be it, it's almost like certain death. If it's two on one, it's like yeah, the Knights of the Cross are going to get out of there alive. They still probably aren't going to defeat the Denarian. If they do. It's it's a very good day for mm. them. It's only when the three of them are combined that they 
they are then a force to be reckoned with and suddenly the balance tips the other way and that denarian is like in the hottest of waters um for them uh and the way that they're like they kind of like um i I imagine it like a pack of wolves bringing down like um a huge elk or something where like they're harrying him and attacking him from different angles and stuff and um it's just it's so cool it's so freaking cool um so yeah um that that really takes us up to uh chapter seven the knights telling harry not to get involved um i it's it's lovely from michael and um obviously he's being he's being michael he's being the protector and like the the lovely uncle kind of thing but he knows Harry. He knows Harry. And this is not the way to stop Harry from getting involved in something. Um, it just feels like a bit naive from Michael at times. Yeah, I kind of agree. It's, And I'm more interested in, about in the whole uh, prophecy they have. Because it seems like a yeah. very whack prophecy. Specifically, say that Dresden is going to die if he does this, but also if he like more importantly, you're trying. Oh wait, no, I just remember they don't know that bit. But I, was, well, I just remember that the the half of the prophecy about if Dresden doesn't help, everyone dies, and so does Chicago. I I just remember they yeah. didn't know that. But um, no, I mean it's. I know that his safety would probably be in your best interest, but at the same time. If anyone's going to get the shroud back, you know. Yeah, and and <laughs> also, I mean, Harry's going to go after this one way or another. Is it yeah. surely not better for the knights to be there when he does? Yeah. Um, Guard yeah, him think... carefully. <laughs> I think Michael is maybe a little naive here, and. Uh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say it's like a plot hole, really. I, I, I honestly believe that the character of Michael would probably do this and would just be like, "Harry will listen to me." Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, and then yeah, uh, the big kind of lore dump with Bob. We get this this scene. Uh, we've talked about it in the past. The kind of like James Bond with Q in the in the lab on like what's the tech for this one um and there's almost like an audible record scratch where yeah. bob's just like uh we're not doing it this time this is <laughs> this is yeah this is bad i'm out um and that's i mean it's another way of like throwing us off there, there was a bit of that in the last book with the the fairy court but Bob's reaction to the fairy courts was like, yeah, I'd like they don't like me. Yeah. Bob's reaction to this one is, if we pursue this, we're all going to die. And that's, that's different. Um, and, and scary. And, and it ups the stakes uh, in, a, in a different way. It's, it's that kind of like, we, there's a pattern to these books already developing. And we're only five books in, but there's a pattern there. And it's like, no, this isn't going to be the same as the other ones. The pattern's broken. Bob's not helping out. Um, this is bad. This is different. 
and mm. um yeah i think um jim does a really good job of getting that across we kind of get the substitute teacher with the oracle um who uh yeah is, is an interesting device and and fills the the roles that bob needs to fill without being there yeah um so yeah uh pretty good um and the law dump is is quite interesting the stuff around the duel with count ortega um that that's kind of looming um and it's very much on harry's mind and we saw that as well with coin um the duel is obviously something that is going to be a big thing in this book and we'll talk about it more as we get closer to it um but it's um it's interesting to see like the structure and the codes around it Mm. and and this is a really interesting bit of lore and i kind of wish that jim would throw another jewel in somewhere uh and explore this lore a bit further um i like it'd be interesting to see harry uh in the place of count ortega um with like he's challenged someone and they've got to like decide what uh weapons to use and stuff and harry gets to choose whether he's okay with it or not and going down that whole route yeah um but uh yeah i think it's um it's a cool bit of lore it's it's uh the first step towards the duel uh and it shows that there's like even though these nations are at war there's a code that they abide by there's a magical geneva convention if you will um and that adds another layer to the magical war the the war of the red court because it, it shows that like this is something that's happened enough before that we've had to codify it and we've had to make rules um and there's something about like institutionalized war that just tells you a lot about the universe and the the history there as well yeah i guess um yeah i i think great few chapters uh there's a lot there's a a lot here that is that we're going to come back to time and time again so i I also don't want to i don't want to dry out the well even though we're uh we're sitting pretty on on an hour and 20 um jesus is there anything else that you want to throw in um not really other than i'm very excited for the next couple of chapters so me too yeah <laughs> I, I mean really jim has laid out all the pieces already here and the rest is just the game and it is a damn good game to watch um mm, yeah in which case rob do you want to take us out yeah as always thank you for the support we've just crossed 4300 downloads which is amazing um as always share follow subscribe next week we'll be doing chapters 9 10 11 and 12 that's right i can count of desk masks and um crack open a can of coke because you've been listening to the paranet podcast with your hosts me rob davis and me patrick lunn And we will see you next time. Bye. Bye.